You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Ana Maria Alessi, and I'm so happy that today Jennifer Robson is joining me to talk about After the War is Over. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. First of all, congratulations on your Indie Next pick. I know, it was very exciting, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm a big lover of independent bookstores where I live in Toronto, but obviously that they're the kind of stores I like to go into whenever I'm traveling. And the thought of, of seeing my book in, in all these stores is, is pretty exciting, I have to say. It's a select list. Congratulations. Now, I think in order to talk about your writing, we have to talk about your family. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to start with your father. With my dad. So <laughs> tell us about your dad. So my dad, his name's Stuart Robson. He is, technically he's retired. He's retired a few times, and then he lasts a year or two, and then he goes back to teaching that's where he's really happiest is in the classroom um, and talking with students. Uh, but at the moment, he's retired from uh, teaching at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Uh, and his career was spent teaching uh, the history of the First and Second World Wars, um, what he talks about, the uh, the crucible of the wars and what they did uh, to that century and, and the one we're living in now. And it was something we talked about at home a lot uh, as well, uh, not in not the the gruesome side of things, uh, but the larger picture. Um, and he was the one who introduced me to the war poets. Uh, I was uh, saying to a friend the other day, you know, I was introduced to Wilfred Owen, the great war poet, when I was in my early teens. That is the perfect time to uh, discover Wilfred Owen. I was a little in love with him for years, I think. And the, the tragedy of his death a week before the armistice yeah. uh, has never left me. And so Dad, he would tell us stories about the war. And I don't mean the blood and guts kind of thing. I mean stories of the ordinary people who fought and the lives they lived, uh, the people he'd met, the veterans he'd met, uh, some of whom he taught in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, although he never said it was teaching, he would just sit back and let them talk and he would learn from them. And so it began with my dad and and, uh, and then my mother as well had a great influence on me. Uh, she was uh, by profession a lawyer, but her grandfather had fought during the war it was something that she wanted us to be aware of. And she was the one who first gave me Vera Britton's Testament of Youth. And I think anyone who has read Testament of Youth will see echoes of uh, Vera herself. It's a memoir uh, in the character of Charlotte that I've created. That's so interesting. And recently on your Facebook page, you posted a picture of your grandmother. I know. That was so fabulous. So tell us a little bit about her and this picture, because it was by a professional photographer. It was. It was. So there was this uh, this fascinating man called Fonsi Pulici, I think that's how you pronounce his name, who was a street photographer in Vancouver in, I think, the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I believe street photographers were, were pretty uh, um, common in big cities at the time, and, you know, they'd take your picture and then see if you wanted it. And so my grandmother was... Uh, I think she would have been 20 or 21. She was very young when she had my mom. So my mom was about two or three in the picture. And that, that was your mom? That's my mother, yeah, yeah. and uh, whose face never changed. She, When she was 50, she looked the same. And uh, they were just out for a day in Vancouver. Uh, they lived in West Vancouver, which was more a suburb of the main city. And they were both, they dressed up clearly, as you did in those days. You didn't leave the house in your, you know, your cat fur-covered yoga pants like I tend to do. 
And my grandmother's wearing her gloves and her hat and, and uh, jewelry, and I'm, of course she had on her lipstick and her hair was done. And my mom was wearing a beautiful little it dress. Was, and It was exquisite. And they did not know they were going to be photographed. That's just what my grandma looked like. It's so elegant. And she was always, uh, she died recently, and but she was always, always so elegant and beautifully turned out. And it was kind of, it always seemed to me to be very effortless. With me, it's always a bit of an effort trying to look like like I'm somewhat polished. But with her, it was it was just intrinsic to her personality. Um, but Grandma had, had a great influence on me, too. She was a journalist in the 1930s and 40s. Um, she first met my grandfather when they were both working at the Vancouver province in the 1930s. And uh, she was a journalist throughout the Second World War. When my grandfather was with the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, she was working for the paper as a journalist. She interviewed Eleanor Roosevelt at one point. Um, And so in a way, I can say she was the first person in my family to be a writer. And uh, so when she passed away uh, recently, I just felt I had to post that picture of her. To me, it encapsulated everything that was beautiful about her. That's lovely. Now, lastly, I understand that your sister... Mm -hmm has influenced your writing career in sort of motivating you, shall we oh, say. she has, my goodness. <laughs> so my sister uh, is the first person I show anything I write to. Uh, with apologies to my wonderful husband, I'm writing my books I've, are written for my friends, uh, my sister, my contemporaries. Uh, and I know if my sister likes something I've written uh, that the wonderful people here at HarperCollins will likely be happy with it and, and my readers as well. And she just loves historical fiction. Um, she works in a neonatal intensive care unit. Her profession is not what you'd call right. tied to the arts yeah. and, and creative uh, industries. But she has a real ear for fiction, I think. Is she older or younger? She's two years younger. and um, But effectively, I, we're, we're, we're contemporaries, really. Yeah. And, uh, and she is the, the, the first and best critic I think I have. And when I was first writing somewhere in France, I was so nervous at the idea of even taking on this task of writing a book. Would it be any good? Maybe it would just be terrible. Uh, but I could trust her to tell me. Jen, this is terrible. <laughs> um, but she liked it, and that gave me the confidence to to you know keep writing, to keep trying, and then eventually to find a home at HarperCollins. Now, I understand that with the first book, the way that you approached it was with these very detailed outlines. Mm-hmm. And, the, and do you... Do you think you'll retain that? Do you think that was something about the first one, or do you think that that will I've, continue? I, 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 I retain that for after the war is over and for the, the book I'm working on now, which I still haven't managed to figure out a title for. Uh, and it is, I, I plan them the same way. For me, the the uh, framework of the book is the history. I, I know there's some authors who can uh, move around dates and events, and I don't disagree with that. It can make for a really interesting narrative. I can't do it. I guess I'm too much of a nerd historian to be able to move things around to suit my fancy. So I take the framework of the existing history and I build on it. And that, so I begin with the research mm-hmm. and I take notes and notes and notes and I start building a picture of the time in my mind. And when that picture is complete, uh, with the many, many, you know, I would be hundreds of pages of notes that I have, that's when I add in uh, my own details, the people I've created, the the events that occur in their lives. And it that's the second layer, I suppose. Uh, but it all begins with this outline that becomes more and more detailed as I go. That's not really surprising because having read your books, and I think what your what your readers react to so strongly is how how confident we are 
that you know your history and oh, that thank you're you. leading us and that we don't have to doubt that anything yeah. is inaccurate or, like you said, sort of misplaced in terms yeah. of the timeline. That's something that would keep me awake at night if I thought my readers uh, had cause to doubt th- uh, the accuracy of what they're reading. Uh, I, I obsess over it. Uh, fortunately, I do have my unpaid research assistant, otherwise known as Dad, uh, who who looks over things once I've written them. And then I have the you know the the academics I worked with uh, when I was at at Oxford uh, have been kind enough. Um, my thesis supervisor and some other professors I know there have been kind enough to look over my books as I write them to tell me if I've got anything wrong. Um, and then there's always people you know who are experts in their field. So uh, for the scenes in Somewhere in France uh, dealing with the uh, the, the trauma surgery, I went to uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine and as well as a cousin of mine uh, for their opinions on how I described the various uh, procedures taking place and, you know, the medical uh, terminology I'd used. Most people wouldn't know whether it was right or wrong, myself included, but I didn't want the one person who did know to read it and then lose all faith in the narrative as a yeah. result. Well, it's, it's exquisite. Now, I, I've read that you said that Somewhere in France asked the question, how would you behave in the midst of war? Mm -hmm. What do you believe is the central question of of after the war is over? There's more tension in terms of the social situation. I think the question uh, for the characters in this book, Charlotte most of all, but uh, the secondary characters as well, is how do you survive? Uh, when the, the rug has been pulled out from under you, when uh, you as an individual and your nation are left on your knees uh, by something that is so cataclysmic uh, that, that beggared the country economically uh, but spiritually as well as the loss of faith uh, on every level uh, with society w- was profound and people were left doubting that, that there could be a future, that the future ahead of them could offer any hope uh, that there was anything to look forward to. And so the story of After the War is Over is the story of Charlotte finding what will come next for her, making it something worthwhile, worth those years of sacrifice. It's a book that's very much about looking forward instead of looking back, but it's a hard thing, and I just think of the trauma that people survived, the way people you know, who, who've gone through any terrible trauma, how do you move on from that defining episode? Um, and with Charlotte, you, she does it through through courage and I think on some level just sheer stubbornness. Yeah, and I, I also, there's a point where you hear her telling herself, oh, even if I didn't get exactly what I was after, I have so much. Mm-hmm. It will all be fine. It's almost like yeah. that survivor's, you know, guilt. Like, oh, okay, yeah. you know, I, I shouldn't complain. You know, I, I have a roof mm-hmm. over my head. I have three square meals. She's constantly sort of saying that to herself. She's saying to herself, it's, I may not get what I deserve, uh, but it's more than I'd ever expected to have, and I will be content. She determines, even though there are some twists and turns in the book that leave her feeling hopeless about her future, she nonetheless determines that she will go on uh, and that she will survive. And not only survive herself, but she will find a way to help others survive. Right. Yeah. It's not unique to British people, but it's something that you see uh, in the character of, of people who, who, real people who lived through this period, uh, a feeling of, uh, I'm not going to let this uh, ruin my life and future. I will grit my teeth and go on. That, that stiff upper lip that we all admire uh, with, in the British people. Do you find that there are distinct pros and cons to writing historical pieces? The pros are that you have 
to a certain degree, um, a framework that you can set it upon, but it's also a constraint. As I said earlier, you know, I can't willy-nilly make things up unless I decide to suddenly write speculative uh, fiction and then I could bring in space battles and, and goodness knows what else that my husband, the sci-fi fan, would be very delighted by. Um, and, you know, there are moments I think to myself, gosh, it would be so great if I could just sit down and write something without having to to research every last detail. Uh, contemporary fiction, I think, would be quite freeing in that sense. But then there's, you know, there are other constraints of contemporary fiction. It's not that it's easier uh, than, than historical fiction. But, you know, historical fiction is where I feel at home. Um, it's the closest I can come to getting in a time machine and traveling back uh, to this period. And, uh, and it just allows me to share, I guess, whatever passion I have for, for history itself. For me, what, what I find fascinating is the way that it shows not only the way people are quite different um, or the lives they live were quite different, but the ways that we all stay the same. Mm. And uh, yeah, Charlotte is recognizable. Uh, she's eminently recognizable. We all know people like Charlotte. We know and love them, as well as the secondary characters in the book. I mean, who has not had a Miss Rathbone as an employer? Or we should all be so lucky yeah, to have Miss Rathbone as their employer. Uh, and the friends in the boarding house that she, yeah, she gets like to know. Uh, these are recognizable types. Um, and so, you know, the, they may have lived 100 years ago, uh, but they're people that you could bump into today, I think. And it's it's sort of a classic love story. It's there is a classic love story in love it. Story. And I did have a lot of people asking me, uh, you know, would I write the story of Charlotte and Edward? And uh, without giving anything away, we come to a resolution in terms of their relationship. She suffered during the war, but he suffered so terribly. Yeah. And he's a broken man at the end of the war. Um, broken uh, not only uh, because of issues with what we would now call PTSD, um, but just his whole world has collapsed and he cannot see uh, what lies at the other end for him. So it's Charlotte to a certain degree pulling him along. Mm -hmm. Uh, showing him that it is worthwhile having hope. And even if things may not be what he deserved, his life may not be what he expected, but it can be a good life all the same. And you can live a good, decent life mm -hmm. despite your disappointments. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. Now, I want to speak to you uh, as a, a writer who is a reader. Mm -hmm. So what was the last book you talked about with a friend? The last book I talked about with a friend? Oh, gosh. I was talking about, um, it was actually uh, Hazel Gaynor's newest book, oh. uh, which has just come out, which she was kind enough to send me a copy of. And I have to admit, I'm saving it for Christmas time. I'm oh, saving yeah. it for when I have Quiet a few time. days. It's yeah. been taunting me. It's sitting on my bedside table. Um, you know, her first book, The the Girl Who Came Home, mm -hmm. was wonderful. And she really has an eye for detail. She captures historical details in a way that makes them interesting without ever feeling like a laundry list of facts. Uh, mm -hmm. She she makes the, the times she writes about come alive. And so, you know, as soon as I found out that Hazel was writing, you know, about flower sellers, uh, you know, in, in the, 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 this is like Eliza Doolittle yeah, yeah. Uh, come to life on the page. Um, and I can hardly wait to read it. I have to say, I'm, I'm feeling very excited. And so this friend had asked, could she borrow the book? And I had to say no, because I'm afraid I won't get it back fast enough. And I want to, I want to have it ready to read as soon as the children go on vacation. And I have just an extra couple of hours a day. Lovely. What, what would your desert island books be? Oh, um, for fiction, it would be uh, 
Girl with a Pearl Earring. Mm-hmm. I know I constantly talk about this book, uh, but I think it's the finest work of historical fiction I've ever read. Tracy Chevalier is a master at historical fiction, and but that book in particular I think is her masterpiece. And, you know, we cannot know what the character of Greet, uh, who is the girl in the beautiful Vermeer portrait, we can't know her life, but this book makes you believe that, well, this can really be the yeah. only option. Every this word, must have happened. Absolutely it must true, have yeah. happened. Um, for nonfiction, I tend to I will, I treat myself to works by Bill Bryson, uh, who, who I adore, um, and and also Adam Gopnik, I have to yeah. say. Those are my comfort reads. Perfect. Now, if you were to recommend a book to a 13-year-old girl, what would it be? A thir- oh, I can tell you right now, it would be Beauty by Robin McKinley. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I, in fact, persuaded my book club to read uh, this book. I know it's marketed as YA, uh, but it is written uh, anyone from about the age of uh, seven or eight, I think, uh, to, you know, someone in their 80s can read and enjoy this book. And it is, it's perfect. Uh, every I've read it, I don't know, I probably have read it 50 or 60 times. Really? I come back to it maybe once or twice a year. It's a fast read. It's not a long uh-huh. book. Um, but it is the perfect retelling of the fairy tale. Yeah. And the character of beauty is so appealing. And the ways even that Robin McKinley turns the narrative. So instead of having the sisters who are mean and nasty and force her to go off to the beast, she comes from a loving, uh, close-knit, beautiful family, which of course then makes the, the, you know, the, the pull away from home so much harder. I mean, if, if everybody's mean to her at home, then why is it such a hardship for beauty to leave? Um, and and the, just the details, again, it's not historical p- fiction per se. It's set in a in defined kind of past with fantastical overtones. But it, it, the richness of the narrative, and it, it's, but it's, her, her writing is beautifully spare and simple. Mm. I, I, I love it. And every every girl I know who, when, when she hits her early teens, uh, that, that's a book that I give them. That's so smart. Are there other books that you routinely reread? You know, a lot of them are are comfort reads. I, I'm big on the comfort reads. Um, and I know, for example, so Rosamund Pilcher, her fiction has, I wouldn't say it's fallen out of fashion, but she's retired from writing and she hasn't been topping the bestseller list recently. Uh, but she wrote about 10, 15 years ago a book called Winter Solstice. And again, it's not... Um, earth-shatteringly original in terms of, uh, you know, uh, setting uh, a new literary style or anything. But in terms of capturing a group of people at a certain place in time, uh, capturing a season, she, it's, it's set over yeah, the, the winter remember, solstice. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's people of all ages, uh, people afflicted by grief, uh, hopelessness. Uh, and nonetheless, it's a, it's a very funny book at, at times. And she captures uh, a sense of place as well as really any uh, writer of popular fiction that I've ever read. And I read that, reread that quite often, I have to say. Um, and I also read The Screwtape Letters uh, every every few years by C.S. Lewis. It's technically a religious book, but it's also a very funny book. They're pur- purportedly written by a senior devil uh, to his uh, junior, uh, I think his nephew actually, and gives him advice on, on tempting humans to make errors and, and get themselves into trouble. It contains a lot of good common sense in it, actually, in terms of how to live your life in a decent way. 
Can you tell us anything about what you're writing now? Oh, I can. It's actually, uh, it's, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, so I take, and I don't want to say who it's about yet because I feel that could spoil some of the narrative in, in book two uh, in After the War is Over. But I take one of the secondary characters from After the War is Over and who also makes an appearance in Somewhere in France. And I send this person uh, to, to the south of France and to Paris in the early 1920s. Oh, well, that's so what do we hear? It's you have and to go over and research how, that? how you suffer when you have to read about Paris <laughs> in the 1920s. It's so boring. Uh, when it's not boring at all, I have to say. And it, what I've been able to do is, is learn so much about the, the writers from the lost generation, of as course, Gertrude yeah. Stein called them. And, um, you know, the Hemingway of the early 1920s is a very different, different man yeah. from the, the almost the caricature that we've all right. become familiar with, as okay. is Scott Fitzgerald, yeah. uh, as are, you know, the, the poets uh, that you see. And it was the, the ferment of thought and change uh, in, in Paris. Everything was on the boil there. Yeah. Everything was changing. And to be there would have been so tremendously exciting. And I hope I can capture some of that I'm in sure the book. But not just in Paris. There were, there were really interesting. Um, there, there's a couple called Gerald and Sarah Murphy uh, who were profiled in the 1960s by Calvin Trillin for the, the New Yorker. And they were contemporaries uh, with the lost generation, maybe a hair older. And, and they were, he was a painter and uh, actually quite a talented painter, although he, he gave it up fairly early in life. They had um, uh, a summer house in, uh, in, in the south of France on the Mediterranean. And uh, their literary friends would flock there. And so that was kind of a secondary center for all the interesting things that were oh, going lovely. on. So there'll be some oh, scenes set in Provence, uh, some in the outlying regions uh, just south, you know, south of Paris and then Paris itself, this, this great romantic city. Um, and it's a city, too, that had been, uh, had been brought to its knees by yeah. the war and, and was very much set in looking forward and... But again, the shadows are still there. Uh, they're long, long shadows, uh, the ones cast by the Great War. And um, I think we're only coming to a really true estimation of them even now, 100 years oh, later. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds exquisite. And we can't wait to read it. Thank so you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been You're wonderful. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. Harper Audio Presents is edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and the books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents. Harper Audio Presents.